my biggest strength is how relatable and likable I can be. But I've used it in so many horrible, disgusting ways. I've used my gift to control people. I use my gift to get away with whatever the fuck I wanted. I use my gift to manipulate situations to make me look like the good guy. You're a scumbag. You're a liar. You're an alcoholic, addict, and a psychopath. I actually convinced myself that I was one of the good guys. I know it's in me somewhere, but it's buried. Nobody wanted anything to do with me because I was a piece of shit. I had a phenomenal upbringing. I was taught to live my life with morals, integrity, the whole nine yards. And unfortunately, you cannot teach the switch to flip off. When that switch turns on, it doesn't matter what you tell me, it doesn't matter what I learned when I was five years old, I will get high every single time because it is me, me, me. This is just a public service announcement to maybe some parents that are listening to this podcast. If you feel any guilt whatsoever, cut the shit right now. You are not the culprit. There's nothing in the world that you could have taught them better, told them better, showed them better, that was going to stop your child from getting high. I don't want to say I didn't, I wasn't thinking what I was doing was wrong. I thought I was just doing what I had to do to survive at the time. Please don't be mad at me. The days of hiding from my problems stop now. The days of giving up on myself stop now. The days of me destroying relationships just so I could feel something stop now. Even if we're monsters in our act of addiction and we can't fathom the shit we've done, we are all worth it. We are all worth it to see those sober days. Welcome to a new episode of An Addictive Perspective. If you like what you hear, please go in and subscribe so you know when the new episodes are coming out. Enjoy the episode. Let's go. Dude, this is awesome that I can see you guys. I know. It's it's enhancing my experience. Mine as well. It makes us feel like we're actually in the room. Yeah, it does. What's up, boys? All right. Be in here. <laughs> this is episode six of an addictive perspective and we have the regular crew here we have matt and we have taylor and we have matt's brother chris he's basically our brother too let's face it Mm -hmm. um so before i start the podcast i did want to um just bring up i know taylor dedicated a podcast to steve um before and I have someone that I want to dedicate this podcast to. Um, we have 1.5 thousand listens, by the way, boys. So that's pretty crazy. And we actually have 193 um, active listeners to our podcast. So that's a lot more than we thought. <laughs> um, I did. <laughs> on March 12th, I actually had someone reach out to me and say. Uh, hey, man, just wanted to let you know, I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to hear more from you guys. <laughs> it's really great what you guys are doing for the sober community and breaking the stigma of the average junkie slash alcoholic and giving hope to the still sick and suffering. <clears throat> so that was one of our listeners. Um, and unfortunately, that listener recently um, fell victim to 
the um, disease that we're talking about, and he had an overdose and passed away. Um, so when we talk about this stuff on our podcast, it's real to us. It's close to us. Um, I grew up with this listener. I'm not going to drop any names or any details or anything like that, but uh, we dedicate this one to you and the rest of them, you know, to anybody out there suffering and anybody that we've lost to this disease. So with that being said, let's uh, let's start this podcast off. Matt, uh, I guess you want to introduce Chris, so go ahead. Oh yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we have not only our first guest, but the first uh, second or the first member of my family that wasn't my parents. Uh, he's the OG. <laughs> he's 50% of proof that my problems are not my parents' fault. He's got a big brain, a big body, and a bigger heart, big spirit as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my older brother, Chris. <laughs> Let's go! What up, everybody? Big bear in the house! The big dog! And let's just... I just want to show my appreciation and admiration to Chris for showing up with a gaming headset on. Oh, hey, man. You work with what you have. It, it sounds phenomenal. Good, I'm glad. Dude, he's just got this whole aura that I fuck <laughs> about him right now. <laughs> so... <clears throat> One thing Matt didn't go over is your credentials. So yeah, let's... I forgot about those. <laughs> let's hear those from the man. I don't know if he actually knows my credentials. <laughs> There's a lot of letters, so go yeah. ahead, Chris. Uh, so uh, I'm Chris. I'm Matt's older brother. I've uh, been best friends with these guys for many years. Um, I went to nursing undergrad at University of Pittsburgh. Got my bachelor's in nursing there. Yeah, hail to Pitt. And then... <laughs> and then I got my master's of science in nursing at uh, the Simmons University. Uh, so I'm a family nurse practitioner now. I work as a hospitalist uh, at a hospital near us. And then I also work part-time at a addiction clinic um, where we work with people struggling with opioid addiction. A couple of people struggling with alcoholism, but mostly people struggling with opioid addiction. So I've been there for, uh, I worked there for three years as an RN. I've been there for three years as a nurse practitioner now. Congrats on the RN and super congrats on the nurse practitioner. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I've watched you grow and I've watched you um, get those credentials and I know how much work you put in. So congrats on that. I know we uh, cheered at your graduation and everything and you've already heard of a thousand times, but I'm proud of you, big boy. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, Taylor, what do you have to say to the big man? Anything before we get started? Well, first off, um, all those letters behind your name's impressive, but honestly, I don't think... I knew that you've been working directly related with the opioid community for six years. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's actually even been longer than longer than six years because I've been at the ER since 2014. So, well, I guess seven, seven years. Cause like even, even from the ER when I was a nurse there, you know, it's a lot of opioid, a lot of interaction with people that struggling with opioid addiction, even some of them before they know that they're struggling with it. Um, so yeah, it's been a, been a ride. And we're not yeah, counting. Yeah, you've, you've been in the trenches a while, man. <laughs> not as long as me, for real. And we're not factoring in the uh, years of living with Matt as well. So <laughs> there's some, there's some experience there. So. Up close and personal. <laughs> uh, so, Chris, I don't know if you've heard any of our episodes or anything like that, 
but uh, we like to start out our podcast with saying something that we're grateful for. So uh, since Matt introduced you and I spoke first, I'm going to let Taylor go first. Oh, okay. Well, you should have <laughs> let Chris go first. He was the guest. Hospitality. No, you're, but... you gotta, you got to set the tone. I'll do it. All right. I will. This might be a little bizarre, um, but I just had a slamming sirloin steak. Perfectly cooked. But yes, my wife on the grill. I will admit she is a better grill master than myself. But here's the reason why I'm grateful for it. That every night, for a while now, I've had the choice of what I get to eat for dinner. Um, it's not planned. It's not told what I'm eating, when I'm, you know. Um, and I'm just grateful that it's not jail liver and onions. That shit. <laughs> the worst. The worst thing you could ever possibly eat is prison liver and onions. It literally tastes like you're eating a nosebleed. He said it before. He's, he's consistent with that. <laughs> Let it be known. Let it be known. All right, Chris, you feel comfortable sharing yet, or do you oh, want yeah. to go? No, I'm, yeah. Um, I'd probably say that, like, right now, uh, I'm sitting in my cousin Devin's basement. Um, pretty grateful for our extended family that we have. Uh, Britt and I and Matt, we're very fortunate to have people that we sold our house and we're moved in with Devin for the time being while we're, our new house is being built. So, and that's just kind of how our extended family's always been that, you know, there for each other. And it's, uh, it's nice to have that big of a support system. Amen. Amen. Matt, you want to go or you want me to go? Uh, I'll go. Uh, I actually, this weekend on Saturday, I got to spend some one-on-one time with Chris's daughter and I made me, it made me realize that usually when I came home uh, to visit and everything, I was wasted the whole time. And even if I did get that time, I wouldn't have remembered it or appreciated it. And I was actually able to have like a, like kind of be in the moment and get out of my own head for a little bit and just appreciate my time I had with uh, Chris's daughter. And uh, it was, it was fun. I had, a, I had a really good day Saturday. So grateful. Amen for that. to that. We love, oh, yeah. hey, hey. we love, Hey, Hey here. Yeah, she, we all got like little ones here baby. running around. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love her too. I love the videos I get on Snapchat and everything. Hayden. I like um, the words she can say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she cracks me up. I'll uh, bring this one back around. I'm thankful for uh, all you guys, actually. I appreciate the time that we've had together, and I appreciate the time we're going to continue to have together. But, you know, as I said, we lost the listener, and I appreciate the time that I had with that one. And uh, so these these moments are special that we get to go go and hang out and do this shit all the time and talk once a week. So I appreciate that. Um. So, Chris, us being a addiction podcast, I guess you'd say, and a perspective on addiction, we're probably not going to talk much about the hospital realm. Yeah. Um, maybe some of the ED stuff that you've seen with addiction or people coming in and out. You can maybe short- share some war stories. Um, I think what we should probably start out with is we're trying to get a, a better understanding of MATs and uh, like Suboxone and Methadone specifically. So I guess, um, what, what does your clinic hand out? Is it Suboxone or is it Methadone? Well, it's a buprenorphine. So Suboxone is the brand name for it. Um, buprenorphine, naloxone combo product, um, or, or just plain buprenorphine. Um, so the way that, so basically, um, medication assisted treatment or MATs are, uh, 
in considered by like in medicine the the gold standard for uh, opioid opiate addiction treatment. Um, you know, that's the the number one recommendation. And you know, I know that everybody has their different opinions on it. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Falk, <laughs> but uh, that's like that's uh, what the American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends, and what um, pretty much all the major organizations recommend is that you know when somebody comes in with moderate to severe opioid use disorder, that you put them on uh, pharmacotherapy with either buprenorphine or methadone or um, naltrexone, uh, like Vivitrol, long-acting injection of naltrexone. Um, once a month. Uh, those are the the three main recommendations. And all of them, honestly, research shows that they're all pretty much interchangeable. They all have pretty much the same level of e- efficacy in preventing relapse. Um, naltrexone, I, I mean, honestly, if, if it was up to me, everybody would be on naltrexone. I think that's the easiest thing, but it's not the easiest thing for people with opioid addiction to do. So anyways, so at our clinic, we do buprenorphine. Um, and basically how that works is that people come in for a once a month visit, um, sometimes more often, depending on how uh, severe their disease is and how, you know, worried like I am about relapse. Uh, you know, I might have them come back in weekly for a little while until they stabilize or biweekly. Um, but, you know, they get a prescription, they fill it, uh, and then they, you know, work whatever system that they're working outside of there um, to, you know, as a co-treatment. So that's kind of how we how we do it at our clinic. Okay. <clears throat> so for the viewers, what is naloxone? Am I saying that right? Naloxone, yeah. So naloxone is Narcan. It's like the, and every, people know what Narcan is for most people. Um, that's the reversal agent for opioid overdoses. So, you know, if somebody comes in, they have an opioid overdose, you give them Narcan, it displaces the opioids from the opioid receptors in the brain. Um, because what happens with opioid overdoses is that you go into a respiratory depression, it slows down your breathing, uh, people end up vomiting, aspirating on their vomit. Um, and that tends to be what is the ultimate uh, cause of death is just hypoxia from not breathing and uh, vomit or swallowing their own or inhaling their own vomit. Um, so naloxone reverses that, allows them to start breathing again. Uh, it's very short acting. So a lot of the times, you know, sometimes they'll need another dose of it. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like an EpiPen. Like if somebody has a, a allergic reaction to something, they give themselves a shot of epinephrine and they're told to go to the ER. If you, somebody gets a shot of Narcan on the, like on the streets, they should go to the ER afterwards because they're more than likely going to need another shot of it. Okay. Uh, and your clinic gives shots of this? Is it pill no. form? Is no, it- we don't do anything with naloxone. I mean, okay. I prescribe it to people. So um, gotcha. Endivere, the company that makes Suboxone, uh, many years ago, they convinced everybody that buprenorphine slash naloxone, the combo product, was harder to divert, and, which means like sell it or abuse it, um, and that it was less injectable um, a less injectable form of the medication. So when, when MAT started and buprenorphine first came out, so let me backtrack for a second here. There's methadone and there's buprenorphine. It's like both methadone's a opioid agonist. So it's a full opioid agonist. It fully activates the opioid receptors. Um, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So with methadone, the goal of treatment is that you continuously increase the dose until they're at a high enough dose that they do not have cravings to use opioids. Um, a lot of times that comes with pretty debilitating side effects, um, nodding off, you know, sleep, sleepiness, just kind of grogginess in general, um, almost a feeling of euphoria because at these high, at, that, at the high doses of methadone that you need to be at to be effective, um, you know, you kind of get that opioid effect of it. 
Uh, buprenorphine is an opioid partial agonist, so it doesn't fully activate the opioid receptors. So some people do get euphoria from it, um, not nearly to the degree that you would get with like heroin, fentanyl, any of the other like full opioid agonists, um, including methadone. So buprenorphine, when it first started out, it's a great drug. Well, it's a good drug. It has a lot of long acting half-life. So it stays in your system for a long time. It stays attached to the opioid receptors and it prevents other opioids from having full effect. So you might get, you know, 20% or 25% of the effect with other opioids that you would normally get 100% of if you have buprenorphine in your system, depending on when you took the buprenorphine. Um, at a certain point, they combine naloxone with it because they basically, to in- discourage people from injecting it, naloxone is very poorly absorbed under the tongue. It does not have a lot of bioavailability, which is how you take suboxone. Uh, but if you inject it, it, it is very powerful. Um, but <clears throat> for the most part, when people inject it, I mean, people still inject buprenorphine, they still inject the combo product. They inject the mono product. Like if people are going to inject something, they're going to inject it no matter what. Um, my preference is to prescribe the combo product simply because I think that people sell it less often. So like, it, you know, a lot of times people come in for plain buprenorphine and that's what they're asking for. And if they ask for it a lot, it's kind of a red flag that, you know, like if you're pushing for something this hard, I don't know that it's necessarily always for the right reasons. Do you guys do Vivitrol? We don't do it a lot. Um, we do it for some people. Um, and there's people that come in that like, and it's all, you know, provider driven to an extent. So if somebody comes in and they tell me that they've been, you know, whenever somebody comes in, they tell me they haven't used any opioids in seven to 10 days. I'm very hesitant to start them on buprenorphine because like you are going to be physiological, like physically dependent on it. Um, I would much rather them start on Vivitrol. So in those situations, especially if they've already got 10 days where they're completely sober, they've already been through severe withdrawal. And now they're just telling me that, you know, they're having some issues with like sleeping and that type of stuff. A lot of times I think Vivitrol is the, the right choice for those people. Cause if you have the, if you have the willpower and the drive as a heroin addict, an opioid addict to go 10 days, days without using when you have the ability to use like that says to me that's more of a mild um you know mild opioid use disorder but when people come in you know with like and they're like i mean a lot of times in the clinic i see people that just shot up in the parking lot so um telling them that they have to go seven to ten days without something is a much harder uh sell for people um because like i mean i mean falk you know withdrawals fucking miserable the worst bro. Not anything the not worst. anything that i would ever want to go through or i can imagine anybody ever wanting to go through so um we don't do nearly as much vivitrol as i would probably like but we do do some vivitrol okay so all right i'm gonna try and make it a little bit more simplified because there's a lot of medical like terminology yeah. being thrown around i can see matt's head spinning at the moment dude this is like every conversation i've ever had with chris he just put, <laughs> he just put my brain in a fucking figure four leg lock i'm over here tapping out like. <laughs> matt just leaned back in his chair and basically just checked out for a second there. he's shot i was yeah. like i was like guess what the, uh you know people come in with problems chris writes some stuff down on a pad <laughs> <laughs> Whatever so, happens from then on, I don't know. <laughs> Works so, or it doesn't. <laughs> the medical terminology for Suboxone, what is it, Chris? As far as what? What your what your uh, facility uses? Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Okay. Buprenorphine. And yeah. then <clears throat> your naloxone is Narcan, which is basically essentially it helps people from overdosing from opiates. Correct. 
Naloxone separately, yes, helps. Like yes. it doesn't prevent overdoses; it reverses overdoses. Reverses overdoses, mm-hmm. and when you combine those and you're prescribing those at the same time, what does that combination do? It's Suboxone. It's, it doesn't. It, so it's together. It, that's what it is. It's just yeah. It's buprenorphine slash naloxone. So it's eight milligrams of buprenorphine, two milligrams of naloxone in one pill. Um, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really. The naloxone doesn't really do anything okay. in there and that that's I can gonna, tell. Going to be What's under that? your tongue. Yes, under your tongue. Yep. Okay. Chris, what I think Josh was trying to figure out was Subutex. Subutex is plain is plain buprenorphine. Yes, that's so. I say buprenorphine combo product. The combo product is Suboxone. That's buprenorphine slash naloxone. Buprenorphine mono product is the Subutex. I don't like to use like the brand names. I don't know. It's just a. Uh, I mean, you're, I mean, the, you're the one who studied it. It's an easier it and, thing, yeah. 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 I just want the viewers to understand it because when you start throwing all that stuff around, right. because in my mind, I only have a little bit of understanding of this stuff. So yeah, when yeah, you yeah. start throwing Narcan with you know, Suboxone with Methadone, I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. like, you know what I yeah. mean? Oh, so yeah. I, I can only understand like someone who doesn't know about this stuff at all yeah going through their head right now so i'm just trying to simplify it a little bit oh for sure um so now when someone comes in so we'll we'll do like a little scenario say taylor we'll go back circa 2010 taylor is in active use i'm not sure what you're using then taylor but we'll say you're using heroin at that time you go into chris's clinic you sit down um and start discussing you know his you i'm assuming you would cut he would come in and you'd ask him how often does he use and when's the last time he used and um then does he get a script that he can go and pick up or yeah. is this something that you guys hand out i've heard that suboxone and methadone clinics i'll use the simpler terms yes um, yeah. some of them you have to show up at a certain time to get the product to be able to get it um, yeah. other places they prescribe it yeah, so for methadone, you have to go to the clinic every day, um, and after sometimes after being there for a little while, they'll give you like a weekend, uh, like a weekend pack, so like you have your medications for the weekend. You don't have to go Saturday and Sunday. Uh, some Suboxone clinics do it where like you go three times a week. Um, some do it where you go once a week. So like they all vary. At our clinic, we do like you like let's say if Taylor were to come in, him and I would talk, and and generally the conversation goes something like you know I ask. When was the last time he used? How much has he been using? When did he start using? What was the initial substance? Um, how did we get from that initial substance to heroin? And I mean, the stories are remarkably similar across you know age groups. That you know, it's it started with whatever it started with. It eventually evolved to Percocet and Oxy, and and then it uh, you know Percocet and Oxy became more expensive, became more expensive. Tried some coke here and there. Um, occasionally Chris, some meth. Anytime I, my second the town reference in this podcast, but anytime freaking oxy gets brought up, I think of Blake Lively via my you gotta chase the rabbit if you want the tail. <laughs> 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 Sorry, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I love cracked out Blake Lively, by the way. <laughs> Anyways. So, you know, and then eventually it progresses to heroin because it's cheaper. Um that's the cheapest fucking matt <laughs> you're on a roll too yeah i know i was I was like and then i was like what was i talking about blake lively chasing the rabbit <laughs> um but anyway so you know progresses to heroin and then we talk about basically talk about what what uh his goals are so you know um everybody kind of has different 
perspective of recovery, a different uh, thought process on what like successful recovery looks like to them. Um, you know, what their goals are with recovery. And then we talk about the medication itself. Um, you know, based on how much they're using, where they're at in the recovery, how long they've been using, we talk about what would be an appropriate dose. A lot of times people, the nice thing or not so nice thing, I guess, a lot of people that come into the clinic have experience with Suboxone in the past, either prescribed or through buying it. Um, a lot of times what happens is, no, I don't have heroin, but I have Suboxone. This will help you through withdrawal. So people are kind of, you know, patching together uh, heroin and Suboxone so that way they can, until they can get heroin again. Because um, like when people are in active addiction, I mean, every, like you guys all know this, like until somebody wants to get better, you can't make them get better. So like people will try and they'll do the Suboxone thing in between getting heroin. Um, so a lot of times that when they come in, they know um, kind of like a dosing that's where they're comfortable. Um be it one a day, one and a half a day, two a day. I try not to start any more than two a day just because I don't think that people generally need more than two a day. One and two, like if you start at two a day, like two Suboxone tabs a day, uh, you don't really have a lot of room for increasing because the maximum that you can really go to is three a day. Uh, so, you know, if you start any higher than that and then they do have cravings, you are worried about relapse. You don't really have anywhere to go with medication itself. So try to start at the lowest effective dose um, and titrate down or up from there. Okay. And then we give him a prescription. He goes, he picks it up at the pharmacy. Um, there's like a specific induction process. So let's say like he came in, he had just shot up in the parking lot. Uh, if he were to like, if Taylor were to go and he were to get the Suboxone prescription and, and take it within an hour of shooting up, he would get very sick. Like it's called precipitated withdrawal. Yeah. Um, Cause it, basically what happens is uh, Suboxone binds so strongly to the opioid receptors that it pushes off all the, heroin from the opioid receptors and just sends you into severe withdrawal as it then reattaches the uh, buprenorphine the suboxone attaches to the opioid receptors so we we talk them through what the induction process is like um and if i'm like if they're really like if they've never tried suboxone before we have them just come back into the office and we walk them through it okay now i i've talked to you a little bit about this before only a little bit but uh you had said that a lot of times people go and you know they're going to go out and try and get high because the Suboxone isn't kind of doing what they want for them. Yeah. Essentially, right? Because it's a maintenance. It's not It's not right. something that's supposed to get them high. It's supposed to help Make them, them feel normal, kind of, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So people go out and they use, and do you guys do you guys test them to continue giving them the Suboxone, or is it something that you don't test for? Or Oh, no, we, we test them. Um so, I mean, not everybody does, but like there's a, a fair percentage of people that will go out and they'll try just because they want to, they want to try. They're not entirely ready to get better, get better. You know, something bad happened that like may seem insignificant to me or, or to you, Josh, people that don't struggle with addiction, but to somebody who's, you know, going through addiction, trying to get into recovery, you know, into long-term recovery, you know, things that might seem insignificant can be huge and uh, be very triggering. So they'll, you know, they'll try and they'll find out that it didn't really do anything, um, or, you know, it didn't really make anything better. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. But um, we test them every time they come in for a prescription. We test it. We do a urine drug screen. Uh, we, It's not used to punish them, though. Um, and I tell people that when I talk to them. I'm like, that, that, nothing irritates me more than when people lie to me. And, like, I mean, you guys know addicts lie. Like, that's just, I mean, they do. They're, they can be very manipulative. 
Dude, um, we don't tell the truth. That's all we do is lie. I know. So like, we don't say one factual sentence ever, yeah. ever. So I tell people when they come into me that come in and that we talk, we're talking about their urines and things like that. I'm like, the thing that pisses me off the most is when people lie to me about their urines. Cause I'm like, cause one, like we'll find out when, when you have a bad urine, like th- that's, you know, number one. And number two, like, I'm not like, I tell them from the jump that, you know, the urines are there to help us help them. Um, you know, and it, it keeps them honest. I've had, I mean, even through this pandemic, I'm sure we'll touch on that. Um, I've had people, cause we do a lot of phone call, phone call appointments right now that tell me that they, they use something that they shouldn't have like over the phone. We're not even testing them right now. Um, that will just tell me up front because they're, they're to be, cause they're completely honest. We have a very honest patient population at our clinic. Um, <laughs> probably 50 percent honesty <laughs> which is you know like uh, pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'll take 50 percent honesty 50, dude. yeah right um so but no we don't like we we don't dismiss them for lying about it um or for for bad urines uh we don't reduce their dose um the only time that we'll we'll dismiss them really is if i think they're selling it um, so if they don't have it in their urine or if they have like, cause we send it, we, we do a dip urine and then we send it out for metabolites too. Um, cause you can break off a piece of Suboxone and put it in the urine and it'll test positive. Uh, and then when you send it out for, for breakdown, there'll only be the buprenorphine. There won't be any of the metabolites. So you can tell pretty easily that somebody faked their urine. Um, how often does that happen? Often enough that I could almost guess when it's going to, <laughs> like, yeah, it's probably, I mean, probably once a week, I would guess, like, somebody does it. And it's because they're, they're either selling it or they're, they think that, you know, they're going to get in trouble for covering up something. I was just saying, I, I faked my, I faked my urine before. Yeah. Yeah, it happens routinely. At your place of employment. <laughs> Do you have a question for him, Matt? Nah, um. Can we talk about, uh, you, so I get like an alcohol shot, like every 30 days, um, to help curb my cravings for alcohol. It's Vivitrol. That's Vivitrol. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we talk about like just what that does? Cause just, just like the alcoholic addict I am, I put stuff in my body and ask zero questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think we went over, um, the Vivitrol. And kind yeah. of what that does, we were more so talking about that, the Suboxone, Narcan, and Methadone. So go ahead and take that away, yeah. Chris. So it's not – so naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. So it attaches the opioid receptor – well, it blocks the opioid receptors from being activated. Um, basically, what happens then is that – like, I'm not sure – I, I'm not sure how to explain it out without using like very like dense medical words. Um, Are you saying I'm too dumb for this conversation? <laughs> no, no, I don't know. It just now Trexone, um, it basically modifies like the, it modifies the hypothalamic pituitary uh, adrenal access to so somehow. Hypothalamic, that's a thyroid, right? Sort of. Adrenal is like my adrenal glands. Yeah. And the pituitary. <laughs> The pituitary is... Yeah. Basically, what you need to know is that it uh, suppresses (laughs) alcohol consumption. Buprenorphine, interestingly, Suboxone, I've had a lot of people tell me that, like, we have a lot of obviously co-occurring alcohol and opioid use disorder. Um, People have decreased alcohol consumption on Suboxone as well. I think probably for similar reasons um, with the way that it uh, modifies that process. 
Now, if you're a severe alcoholic, like severe, severe, where if you were to go cold turkey, you could die from withdrawal. Is Vivitrol an option? Does that prevent you from dying from no. alcohol withdrawal? Or how would you? I don't think so. I think, and I'm not as familiar with alcohol detox, um, just because that's not near what I deal with nearly as much. I deal with it a lot in the hospital. Um, basically, you would need to be detoxed in a hospital or a facility that does that, um, normally on like a Librium or an Ativan taper um, over four to five days. Otherwise, you can end up in seizures, severe uh, delirium tremens, so DTs, um, which is like severe withdrawal, and you could die from that. Okay. So, as far as like referral sources, Josh, the earliest that like we could book a patient who is actively drinking and if he stopped that day, that a facility would give him his first Vivitrol shots normally like 72 hours. I thought that uh, (laughs) withdrawal symptoms really didn't show up until that 72 hour mark, correct? I mean, if you go cold turkey, I mean, not necessarily the severe tremens and all that. Yeah. It could be it could be longer, but yeah, uh, false right. I mean, it just it generally happens once your alcohol level goes below whatever you're normally at. So I've seen people that are still technically have a like a, a elevated alcohol level, like above the legal limit, that are starting to withdraw because that's like way below what they're normally at. Okay, all right. And it's the same. Like I know from like personal experience, if I shot up. Definitely within three hours, and I'm sure heroin's still in my system at that point, but within three hours, I will start sweating, cold flashes, irritated stomach, and slight yeah. nausea. Yeah. Every yeah. three hours, yeah. I die. Yeah, mine was like probably every like 12 hours with alcohol. Like, I definitely, I felt it for the first month and a half, uh, pretty much until I started getting Vivitrol shots. Um how just like the very serious like withdrawal like nausea like cold sweats the whole the whole deal sucked we're, we're through the woods there though <laughs> yeah so um what falk was saying there too so like what's interesting is that like we'll see people i'll see people on suboxone at the clinic um that are on two a day and they'll tell me that they wake up in the morning and they feel like they're in withdrawal um which is just not not possible like it's not how it works like the so the suboxone like it's so it binds so strongly to opioid receptors that like 99 percent of your opioid receptors are covered at two tablets a day so 16 milligrams a day um and they're covered for about 36 hours so what happens though is that and people are so used to the short half-life of heroin, Percocet, whatever it is, and you get these peaks and valleys where you have to take something every three or four hours or your body feels like it's, or it does go into withdrawal because Percocet and heroin have such a short half-life um, that like you, your body becomes so psychologically dependent on that, that like, and I tell people that like, like you might not be technically like your, your brain wouldn't think that you're going through withdrawal, but you're, you Psych- psychologically think you're going through withdrawal and you manifest these symptoms um even though you should be on like an appropriate amount of buprenorphine that you shouldn't be going through any withdrawal symptoms or suboxone i'm sorry um so it's interesting that people that you know that i'm like well you're on technically like the right amount of it but if you're if you're taking it you know the full dose first thing in the morning and you don't take anything the rest of the day when you've trained your brain that you're taking something every four to six hours so you don't feel sick you're going to feel sick even though you should not technically feel sick does that make sense 
That's very, yeah. very interesting. So it's more of a psychological thing than well, it is a physiological. I think a lot of addiction is a lot of a psychological thing. Um, that cre- And there's a physical dependence, certainly. But, yeah, I mean, it's a huge, you know, a, a huge amount of it psychological. Gotcha, gotcha. So do you guys, to go back to your clinic, because <clears throat> I want to kind of stick with that as well, because I had a couple questions there, was um, – do you guys have court ordered patients at all? Do you guys take yeah. court ordered patients? At yeah, we have facility? some of their we have some of their court ordered fine treatment that they come to our facility. Yep. Okay. And do you know of any? And you might not. Do you know of any um, like statistics or um, studies out there that show um, for your patient and your clientele the success rates? Do they differ if? someone is not only court ordered but if they're handing it out like daily versus giving it out as a prescription over a week or a month is there any differentiation in that i don't think that um i don't know about like court ordered versus not court ordered i don't think that like in the medication assisted treatment i don't think that there's any any reported difference based on studies and efficacy between like daily, um, you know, distribution or prescription based. Um, I think that sometimes the daily distribution is better for people that need it to be a little stricter, like to need that tighter, you know, overview. Um, but I don't think like, I'm not aware of if there's any like significant difference between like in, in relapse rates or anything like that. I think it's all about 50, 50%. Okay. Um, I, I just wondered that because I'm just thinking in my head, that's a pretty significant difference in you know treatment Mm -hmm. having someone show up daily and most of the time when i had clients that were at children and youth you know they would say they had to be there at 7 a.m to get their treatment and if they missed that window they weren't getting it yeah well the reason being that with methadone like you can you can overdose on methadone like you can take you can take too much and you can die from it um buprenorphine i mean i guess like technically you could overdose on it but it's very hard to overdose on buprenorphine like you can i mean somebody could take their whole bottle and they'd just be kind of wasting it really so okay yeah that's interesting so do you boys have any questions so far i i asked my one question other than that (laughs) this is all above my head dude (laughs) It's crazy. You're like, you guys are really related. It's like, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure are. <laughs> we got proof. <laughs> Taylor, do you have any statements, questions? I'm, I'm at this point, I'm just along for the ride. Um, nothing. I, I think Chris has really given a good illustration and a really good picture of um, kind of from step you know, from the beginning infant stages of a person coming in to kind of where his vision to lead them is going as far as, you know, yeah, the dancing yeah. and um, all those kind of necessary steps, you know, for the big picture kind of thing. So I, th- I think he is up to this point doing a really good job with that. Honestly, I, people love to hear people disagree, but I, me standing on my soapbox isn't going to help the viewer right now. This just isn't the time or place to yeah. really express. Okay. So uh, what I'll say though, too, <laughs> is that like from the treatment standpoint, like my vision and what I think it's important to, to impart to people listening 
about Suboxone is that Suboxone doesn't fix anything. Like it, it doesn't fix your problems. It doesn't fix your life. It doesn't fix the shit that you've got going on, the poor decisions or the poor people that you're surrounded with. Like at the end of the day, Suboxone helps prevent opioid withdrawal or helps prevent opioid withdrawal. It helps prevent death from opioid overdose and it helps decrease opioid cravings. But like, that's not a long-term solution to whatever got people to the point that they're at, whether, you know, in our, in our office. Um, and that's the big thing I tell people is that like Suboxone doesn't stop life from sucking. Sometimes life still sucks. Bad shit still happens. And the main point of Suboxone is that it allows people to, as they go through life and deal with life sucking to figure out how they're going to cope with that without a substance and without overdosing and dying. Um, so that eventually the goal is that, you know, that, that as we decrease their dose down and titrate them down off of it and however long it takes until they feel comfortable to come off of it, um, that it allows for them to deal with those situations and figure out a way to deal with them in a healthy way. And then do all of the things that you guys have talked about, you know, as far as figuring out what is wrong, like what, what they're missing and how to, how to fix that with what they've been trying to fix it with, with, you know, heroin or Percocet or whatever it is, uh, for as long as they have been. So, you know, I, I think that like, and we get a lot of people that come in that think Suboxone is just the answer to their problems. And it's, it's not. It's a very useful tool, but that at the end of the day, that's all it is. This is another tool on your on your tool belt. Is that what you call it, Falk? A tool belt? Yeah. 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 So it's just another tool. Like it, it, it's useless without doing the other things outside of the office. Um, you know, it's great when people come in. They talk to me for thirty minutes about you know how things are going, but if they go out and they just fuck off for you know twenty nine more days, then it's you know it's just a waste of everybody's time involved. Um, so I think that that's like, you know, it's not, Suboxone, it doesn't just, it's not the easy button. Um, like there's still a lot of work that you, that you have to put in if you want to get out on the other side of this. Cause there's, I mean, there's people that, you know, that are on Suboxone for years and relapse and overdose and die. It's not a, you know, cure all. I think that's a really good point to make, Chris. And I won't speak for Taylor on this, but I'll speak for me. Um, if getting the Vivitrol shot was the only thing that I was doing, and even just taking my antidepressants, if that was the only thing I was doing, I would have relapsed by now 100% mm-hmm. because yeah. I've still had urges that I still have them quite frequently. And honestly, even with all the damage I've done and how far my life got out of control, there's still a part of me that wakes up and like I have to make, I have to like convince myself not to drink because guess what? This is hard. And the pain that I'm feeling right now, like I have to feel. And it's, guys, when I, everybody that's listening to me, when I tell you anything involving recovery that sounds good, I learned that from the people in the rooms or a book or something. That is not, I've had, I have not had one original thought that comes to recovery or me recovering that is effective. If you want to know how to, you know, avoid your problems by drinking, how to hurt the people around you, how to, you know, do anything that isn't good. I've got ideas, you know, I've proven that I, but if you hear something that's like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I've learned that in the rooms and I need that because it like, even uh, to give you guys an example, I was using sleeping medication um, to to go to sleep. My sponsor was like, Hey man, get, you're taking the easier, softer way. So even something as innocent as that, you know, where I was like, yeah, I just want to sleep. You know, I have to fight through this and I have to do it in the way that I'm doing it 
through going to meetings, through doing all that. Otherwise, I'm going to relapse because I think about it every single day. And until when I pick up the phone and call somebody that I've met in the groups and we talk through why and we talk through what needs to what doesn't need to. My problems didn't get fixed when I put the drink down. They just I just started to give myself a chance. So if you just, you know, if you rely on there's no one fix to this. Right. You know, if you rely on just like if I just was like, hey, got the shot. I, at least I didn't drink today. I'm fixed. I'm not fixed. I, guys, I still think the exact same way. Honestly, if you go, if I, if I share my actual thoughts, I want everybody to trust me. I want everybody to forgive me. And I want everybody to just be like, like praise me pretty much because I have what, 10 weeks sober. Like, look at me. I've got a podcast. You know, that's how I think that is my brain. But I have people that keep me humble that are like, dickhead you haven't done shit you know you haven't even made it through all like your all the work you have to do yet like you know like i still think like an alcoholic and i thought like an alcoholic long before i picked up a drink and that's what you have to fix you know and and i'm sure taylor can taylor can speak on his part of that yeah i mean i i think you hit the nail on the head and to go back on what chris just said is the only way to put it is there's no magic pill to this it's just not something that just goes away because you're taking something um that crave that curbs the cravings and it's not it's just not how it works so i guess to pedal back to chris here does your facility kind of help with that did they have social workers or case managers that get people hooked up with psych services and uh other alcoholics or other drug addicts I will encourage people to reach out. Like we know, like I know counselors in the area. I know like Crossroads and um, so I know different counselors in the area and like, you know, I'll be like, you should reach out, have their, have them go to their PCP because like at the end of the day, we don't have the resources yet at the clinic. I think that we are trying over the next year or two to try to get some in-house counselors um, and things like that. Cause I think that would be beneficial. Um, but you know, it's, some of this stuff, it goes back to like, it's not always like counseling and that type of stuff and in group and whatnot. Um, it's if that works for you, then that works for you, but that doesn't work for everybody. So basically, and and this goes to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, um, they're basically, they're stand- <laughs> their standpoint is that um, counseling is effective if the patient thinks it's effective. Um, so we don't force people to do counseling. I strongly encourage it. Um, but like if people aren't ready to do counseling or some people, you know, their counseling is coming in and talking to me for 30 minutes, like, and that's good enough for them. Um, as long as they're doing the things outside of that, you know, um, making amends with people, trying to fix their relationships, mend their relationships, um, you know, working, getting jobs, um, trying to mend their relationships with their children. And I see a lot of people do that even without counseling. Now I will say that the uh, people that I've seen do the best have utilized every, uh, every tool that's been given to them. Um, the people that have went to counselors have done group therapy um, that have really like, not just like the, the thing that, the thing that is tough about Suboxone is it's easy to half-ass it and do okay. Um because like Matt said, it's like with the sleeping pill, like you're just kind of, you're not, you're not fully committing to just like being fully abstinent from any, any substance. Um, the counterpoint to that is that, you know, addiction is a disease. 
we use medications to help treat diseases all the time. Um, type two diabetes. If we did what was to avoid medication, the right thing for them, we would tell people to lose weight, exercise more and eat better. Um, and their diabetes would go away. Uh, so, but we use medications because that's just not like a thing that everybody can do. The people that like, and I tell people that all the time that like, if you can do this, if you can do 10 days with 10 days without any substance, you can get into group, you can find somebody that you have a strong support system. Don't get on Suboxone. That's not, it's not going to help anything if you can do those things. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people just can't do those things. So yeah, but back to the original point, um, we don't have anybody in-house right now, but we are working, I think, on getting them. We just merged with a um, bigger management company, so hopefully being able to get some of that stuff. I think you touched on it briefly, Chris. Um, I know nothing – there is far – there's not a lot of situations that are perfect with an addiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. But given a perfect circumstance – Suboxone and MAT is not designed to be a life-sustaining forever kind of thing, correct? No, in a, in a perfect world, um, basically they recommend that people that half as long as they were addicted, they be treated for. So, like, you know, if you're addicted for five years, be treated for about two and a half years. Um, it, it all depends on individual patients. I've seen patients wean off in six months. Um, I've seen patients that are on it for 10 years, and they're like, look... Like I, I work a full-time job. I've got two kids. I pay my bills, my taxes. I go on vacations. You know, I'm very happy. I'm married. Like they're like, I don't want to risk, take any minuscule risk that there might be of, of going back to the life that I was in. So they're like, I would rather stay on it forever. And I don't begrudge anybody that thinks like that. You know, if they get to a point where they're so happy and their lives are good and, you know, they're like anybody else, just normal, but dependent on a medication, um, you know, until they're ready to come off of it. I don't, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, but in a perfect world, yeah, I would say that like a year to two years of treatment, um, preferably with sublocade. So sublocade is an injectable long acting, uh, suboxone. Um, so that's a once a month, once a month injection. And I think that that's better because that further breaks that psychological connection to the medication. Um, so preferably with that once a month would be like my vision for the future that that's how we're doing a lot of treatment is just with sublocade. Um, so that way people can, so I mean, like, like it is a tool, but it does like, you know, it's something that people are dependent on the suboxone. Um, and it's hard to break that psychological connection more than it is to break the physical dependence um, of the medication. But yeah, perfect world, I would say like one to two years of treatment and then weaning. From, from what I've seen, you know, and that's, that's a one knock that as far as suboxone and subutex and, you know, that goes, I have seen people wean off on that in a lot quicker manner than say methadone. Cause I think, yeah. you know, it, it's very common now to see a patient with a dose of 200 milligrams of methadone. And I think the clinic takes you down no less than six milligrams, like every couple weeks. So, I mean, potentially you're looking at at least a couple years to even come down off 200, but a lot of people say once you're at 200 and even try to go to 100, it's just absolutely excruciating. And that's where at least I, I really see the effectiveness in Suboxone. And I, and I think you can you can tell me if I'm wrong, Chris, but 
I think at least in the addiction community, there's this huge kind of 180 going from methadone to let's try to um, really not so much push Suboxone, but this seems like it's a lot more effective product than methadone is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I've seen too. Um, and I, I will tell you, I've seen people wean down off of high doses of methadone because like when we transition them from methadone to Suboxone, and I mean, they are fucking miserable. And I've seen people that, like this one girl, she had went from like 220 milligrams and she came into the office because you have to wean down to 30 milligrams um, before you can transition. Uh, she was down at like 110 milligrams and she was sweating, you know, nose running, goosebumps all over, legs were just moving a mile a minute. Like I felt so bad for her. And that was at 110 milligrams of methadone. Um, and we're trying to get her down to 30 to switch her to Suboxone. She's doing fantastic now. Like, I mean, this is a year later now. She's doing fa- fantastic. But that, you know, you just see people. I mean, and that's like, you know, I think that that's something. I, I know that sometimes it's hard with addiction to empathize with people. Um, I know that I struggled with it. when I So in the ER, um, I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago when we had like, uh, I think, 57 overdoses in three days. Um, there was like just a bad batch with a lot of fentanyl and the heroin. And I mean, it was I was there for all three days. It was it was absolutely wild. Um, it was like every every 15, 20 minutes, every hour, there was another overdose coming in. And it was to the point where there were at times there were batch like if people were using together um, or just at that moment, like three or four people had used it, uh, they would be calling and we would literally so they would give Narcan, it would work for a minute, but they would have intubated them. So before they transferred them to the ER, they would intubate them and we would give them Narcan there. So intubating, they put a tube into their lungs to and put them on a like and deliver respirations via a bag, um, like a, a squeeze bag, uh, because it's better to intubate and move them to the ER than to be in a four by four back of an ambulance and give Narcan and have somebody come out of an overdose in full withdrawal almost. Um, you don't want to be in that situation, you know, when somebody's coming out of an overdose like that. So we would be bringing them in, giving them Narcan, and within 10 minutes, they'd be pulling their tube out and they'd be leaving and another one would be coming in. Um, so, you know, I it, it can be very frustrating uh, from like that side of things. And like, that's where I came from when I started working at the clinic was seeing a lot of overdoses, a lot of repeat overdoses, a lot of people that left the ER after being resuscitated and overdosed and came back that same day, um, you know, within an hour or two hours of leaving. And, you know, it's very easy to get jaded to that. But working at the clinic and like talking to a lot of these people, it's nobody would willingly put themselves into that situation. Like if they knew what they knew, what they know now, nobody would say like, Oh yeah, like I'm stoked that I'm addicted to heroin. Like there's not a single person that after going through all of that is like, yeah, this is my best life. This is how I want to spend the rest of my life. Um, maybe, you know, early on in active addiction, when you think that you've got a handle on it, you know, but it gets to a point where like, you can see it on people. They're just like tired and just exhausted from, you know, constantly lying, manipulating, uh, trying to figure out, you know, where they're going to score next, when they're going to get their next drink, whatever it is. I think that's where like you can, where you can have empathy with people is that like, it's not a situation that people, if they knew how it was going to end and like they, like they could see 10 years into the future that they would willingly be doing that to themselves. Um, cause like it just looks miserable. I did have someone reach out to me, um, couple days ago and they said you know i i really feel like like you said i feel jaded about this like i keep seeing people 
losing their lives and leaving their children and, you know, basically ruining the lives of everyone around them over a substance. And, you know, they were discussing the disease or not a disease argument and all that. But, you know, it was just you try and gain empathy and you don't have empathy if you don't see it actually affecting your own life or the other people around you. And like you said, I mean, in that moment, people going right back to it, coming back into the ED, it's, it's crazy. Like what, what kind of moron would do that to themselves? And I think it's kind of equal to opening up the news and just reading about a story about, you know, someone overdosing. And it's like, if you see it that way or you experience it that way, are you really understanding the disease? Right. You're not. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do it that way. And, you know, the other thing that I'll say is that, like, as far as, like, the disease thing goes, one one of the biggest things, and, like, I've known I've known Taylor for a long time. Obviously, I've known Matt for a long time. 27 years. <laughs> I was like 31 years, but yeah, you're 27. <laughs> yeah, who's the smart one now? One for me, baby. But um, but you know, there is a clear difference in the person that Taylor was, that Taylor became, and that Taylor is now. I mean, like it, it's it's night and day, you know. And I've told Taylor that before that like the the guy that he's become, the guy that he was, is not somebody that he would have become if it wasn't if addiction wasn't a disease, like he did things that weren't him that, you know, were not his character or his personality because the addiction was that powerful and the disease overtook him. And the same thing with Matt, even in 10 weeks, Matt's, you know, seems like a different guy. Like he's different to be around. He's, you know, you're more pleasant to be around Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still at the point where it's like not natural. I have, I'm, yeah, I'm like but, trying to be. But you're, you're, you're doing a good job at it. But that's the thing is that like a lot of things that people do when they're, you know, and people say that like, well, this isn't my, you know, this isn't my son or this isn't my brother. You know, they wouldn't do that. And I, I think that's, I think that's right that they wouldn't do that, but for the addiction. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some truth to that because the best way that I can describe, like at least my experience to people is that there could not been a more disconnect between what was in my heart and what was going on in my head. Yeah. You know, like the actions that I took were a lot or any impulse action that I've ever done has been terrible. And then I felt I'm like the guilt and the shame and everything that I feel. I'm like thankful that I feel that because it's like, I know that the shit that I did was wrong, you know, and as hard as it is to get through and as much pain as I'm feeling, like it's been explained to me and I believe them that the only way I'm going to get through this and not come back to it is by going through the pain. You know, like the only way to get through it is to get through it. What you got, Josh? I was going to say, Matt, how do you feel about that statement that Chris just made that you are so much better to be around now, even after just 10 weeks, but when you were in your active use, you probably felt like you were way more lovable when you were drunk. I think that there was, there was always a part of me that I'm getting a little bit of a clear lens on things. So in my head, nobody's ever made me feel inferior. Like even the, my friends that I had along the way, like nobody's ever made me feel like I didn't belong somewhere, but I always felt that way. You know, like I've, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And that's part of this whole thing is when I drank, I was able to escape myself for a couple hours and uh, 
it worked for a while, but then you start seeing the consequences of what's going on. And like the more and more out of my mind that I got as far as alcohol and drugs, the worse my decision making became and the more spiteful I became and every and the more jealous all these character defects that you know you learn about yourself along the way the more those showed up and the more stuff that uh the more good parts about me as far as like my good nature and like me having a good heart me caring about people at the end of it i my actions showed i didn't care about anything but myself and uh you know that's a yeah that's it's a tough pill to swallow but how do i feel about that it's encouraging but it's also like I, I, like I told you guys, I still think the same exact way. I mean, I'm starting to recognize it and talk through why I think like this and it's starting to make some sense. And I think I'm making small steps towards growth, but this I isn't think, something that gets fixed in 10 weeks. Yeah. I think it's something that you need to hear and it needs to be emphasized though, because mm-hmm. you're in your head so much more now that you actually feel every little fucking emotion because you yeah. can't drown it out. So I think it's something that you need to hear, you know, so that's why I wanted to emphasize that point. Um, so, but yeah, at I any rate, it, <laughs> yeah. it's good to hear. It's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor, any thoughts at the moment? You look puzzled. No, man, I, this is really good content. So yeah, I, nothing really comes to mind right now. Okay. So uh, Taylor, what, what would you say as far as just, um, your journey and the early parts of having to go through, like what I was talking about, like all the pain you went through and having to battle those demons in your brain without the use of drugs or alcohol. Rough, rough. Right. And it, and it's really honestly, I I know how challenging it was, but like the certain the certain stuff that bothered me early on, I can't really recall that. Um, and you know, I can't really recall any like exact emotions, but I did know that like I really struggled identifying what emotion I was feeling. That's the one thing that I do remember, like. Am I sad? Am I, am I, you know, self-centered about this? Am I mad? Or is it just like, I'm afraid of something. So like, that's the thing that I feel like I, that I really identified the most with early on, as far as that, like emotional health of getting sober and kind of dealing with like all of the junk and the wreckage of the past was, I really, I never knew what exactly I felt. And, you know, it almost like I, I'm not bipolar, but, you know, it, it would seem at times like I would have this, you know, over heightened state of really happiness. Then I'd be like out of the blue, I'd be fearful of like the unknown or something that's going to happen two weeks from now. Um, and then after that fear sets in, um, I would get mad for no reason. So, I I, I, yeah, like I, I just really couldn't navigate through my emotions um yeah and like i don't know really when things started really like taking a turn from the better i think once you kind of get through the wreckage of the past and start working on that but like it's not really until you get to when you truly examine all your character defects like when you really lay them all out all out and say like all this stuff has to go it's not like I'll, i'll pick my poison let me keep um let me keep ego let me keep pride and let me keep lust 
because those are cool character defects to have. Um, But it it wasn't really until I laid all that stuff out and, you know, examined what I really had to do for, you know, self-growth until I really was able to make some, I would say, serious strides in my emotional well-being. But yeah, dude, 10 weeks ain't shit. No. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not the one. No, and no I, I will echo what everyone said. I think you're doing great. I really think, like I said, I've said this on like two other podcasts. The amount of effort you've put into your first 10 weeks has far surpassed my first 10 weeks. Um, but yeah, dude, that emotional, like you're just the emotional state. Buckle up, bucko, because you're going to be in for a ride for you know, cross country trip. I think it's what's crazy is, is when you talk about laying out those character defects and everything, and you look at every, when I looked at everything I was resentful about 95% of those, I either allowed to happen, meaning like I did, I could have removed myself from the situation or I, 95% of those I had a hand in. There was only about 5% of those where it's like, you know what? Caught a bad break there. Yeah, that like, but when you actually can look at that, and you're like, oh, the reason why I'm pissed about that is because of my ego. The reason why it still haunts me is because it hurt my pride. The reason why, um, you know, all these things, and it's it's not like it, yeah, because guess what, lust is a fun one to have. You know, like who who wants to get rid? Well, it's like, do I want to get rid of lust? It's like, well, I don't. I kind of don't want to get rid of all of it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be a monk over here. But it's also like that's one of the issues that you have to get rid of. Like, it's still to in order to be the man that I want to be, which I'll never reach. But I the my the the reason why I'm doing this program is to try to close the gap. And if I pick up a drink, I get further away from that. And that's the best way that I can explain it to anybody is it. Yeah. I will never be the man that I want to be. I hope, I hope not, you know, cause then I'm that my ego is telling me I've made it, but I have to continue to try to close the gap. And that's what Taylor's trying to do. And that's what pretty much everybody should be trying to do, whether you're an addict or not is to close the gap to be the best person you can be. Cause we'll never be, we'll never reach it. And I think that uh, what Matt had said earlier in the podcast Um, and now connects really well for myself, Taylor already knows it, but myself, Chris, and the listeners, is that Matt had to question why he's part of this podcast. You know, after the first couple episodes, he had to really do some checking in with himself because it is a lot of ego, I'm sure, that drives Matt to wanting to do this podcast initially. But Definitely. I think that there's something that, you know, as long as you're acknowledging that and you do have kind of a sensei in a way like you do in the program and when you have Taylor here as part of this, because you do have to be careful. So I think that was something that was an eye opener for me because we talked off the podcast and you asked us, you know, why am I doing this podcast? Am I doing it for myself? Am I doing it to help other people? And I think if we're all being honest, I think it was a little bit of both for sure. So that's the thing about these rooms and the program is it's for just like there's not one fix. There's not just one person like it teaches you that like the are, are me, addicts and alcoholics, I can speak for at least my thing is my perspective is I 
didn't I, I when I was drinking and everything thought whatever I thought was right you know whatever I th- what is going on in my head and if I didn't think it was right I would justify I would justify it somehow like well this person did this so I'm gonna do this at least I'm not doing this like I always I thought I didn't have a problem because I wasn't doing heroin now I'm drinking every day <laughs> I'm smoking an ounce a week I'm doing other party drugs I'm running up credit card debt i'm not being a good person really i'm stepping out i'm unfaithful in my relationship i'm doing i'm i'm a scumbag but i don't have a problem why would i have a problem and the power of being in these groups and everything is you have people that keep you honest man like there's stuff that even if i think i have the best intentions towards like this podcast it's like but they make you take you they make you be brutally honest with Everything going on in your life and that brutal honesty is the only thing that's going to lead me to be live a happy life without the use of drugs and alcohol is being brutally honest. Like it's it's what helped Taylor. He, I mean, you can ask Taylor anything about his past and he will. I mean, I'm sure you don't just like voice it to like strangers like, oh, yeah, I was a heroin addict. But if you're if you know you need Taylor's help or whatever, he will tell you because he's told me. Like, this probably wasn't easy for Taylor to share, but, like, this is exactly how he was feeling. And I can't just, I can't tell people how important that is for me and my recovery is not only me trying to be brutally honest with myself, but sometimes even when I think I'm doing the right thing, obviously my way got me to the point where I needed to get more help. You have to ask for help. You no, I don't, I've never met anybody that's been able to kick this on their own. That's 100%. But we just went off on a ridiculous tangent (laughs) where Chris, our guest, is not speaking at all. So I do feel bad. (laughs) He he had the first 45. Yeah, I'm here for it. It's not about you, Matt. Remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's something I I tell people. I I probably told that to Matt. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, I mean, you can keep shit to yourself and you can not talk about it and you can not tell people about what goes on um, and you can try and do it on your own, but it doesn't work. Um, And like, even like, you know, and not, I'm not saying like, you know, go out and just start telling everybody on the street, but like, I tell that to people at the clinic all the time. Um, I'm sure that it's expressed at a group. Um, Like there's nothing anybody can tell me that's going to surprise me at this point. Like nobody's story is unique. Everybody has done a lot of fucked up shit to get where they're at. Um, They've hurt a lot of people. They've done a lot of things that they're ashamed of and they regret. And if you're trying to actively better yourself and, and do things to, to rectify the um, mistakes you've made, the people you've hurt, uh, you know, make amends there. Like that's something that's commendable. I think, um, because it's not easy. It's not like it's like, you know, oh, this is something that's just, you know, you're going to wake up and it's just the easy thing to do. It's it's a lot of work. But, you know, I think it's important to have those relationships with other people who have gone through it. Because, like, you know, there's a point in time, I'm sure, in everybody who's struggling with addiction um, where they think that the stuff that they've done is the worst thing that anybody has ever done in the world. And it's just not. It's literally never the worst thing. Somebody Like, there's always somebody that you're going to meet that's been like, oh, you think that's fucked up? Listen to what I did. And look at where I'm at now. (laughs) So I think that you know that's the important part of the community is that like you have those people that 
to to be brutally honest with you like yeah like i fucked up a lot i did these terrible things and i made it out like i'm in long-term recovery you know obviously I, i've heard falk say it that you know that long-term recovery doesn't mean that you're you're clear of it it doesn't mean that you don't still deal with it or struggle with it or that you don't still have to work on it it's not like oh you made it you know x many years you're never going to deal with this again um you know, it's just uh, like you, you keep dealing with it, you keep working it and you keep staying ahead of it so that it doesn't catch up with you and put you back into the, you know, the path where you, that got you to where you were, um, you know, when you first started in recovery. It's not a, you know, a one and done thing. And what's crazy, and I heard this this week, uh, somebody said uh, that euphoric feeling you get when you're like drunk or high, you know, what the reason why people drink, get drunk or high. Yeah um you know that you know that one um he said i will never feel that feeling again this is somebody that relapsed before and everything's like it was every time i stepped out it got worse and i that's one thing that i believe because i have not felt that feeling since i was a teenager so i was a fucking teenager and guess what i was chasing it for a decade but i do at the the, especially my last couple years of drinking I just drank to get normal. Like I just drank. So like my anxiety and my depression would just calm the fuck down for a little bit. And that's, it's sad. And honestly, even with all the damage I've done, if you told me that I could feel that feeling again, I'd probably drink again. I mean, it's a combined thing, you know, like it's a combined thing. If like you see the nature of your consequences and everything when you're like that and I'm not really getting anything out of this. It's just taking at this point, I'm not getting anything and I'm exhausted yeah, you know, like, and that's it's that that combination. But that's how that's how strong this shit is because get, I I miss the feeling of being drunk. I do. I miss the feeling of being high. Like, and I, yeah, I have to be honest about that. Otherwise, like, you know, the whole brutal honesty. Like, honestly, every meeting I go to, and they ask if anybody had the urge to drink today, I could raise my hand. I probably I could. Like, it's like at some point, I, I I guess what I think it's the. Probably it's in the top five of things I think about first thing in the morning. It might not be the first thing, but it's not coming too far after that. So I, you know, okay, I do the things I have to do to stay sober that day. But it, all I have is that day. I'm I'm a fickle little bitch right now. Like, <laughs> I am, dude. I'm fucking weak. <laughs> no, no, for real, Matt. That's that's gospel, bro. Because yeah. honestly, like people are probably you know, shaking their head or like this dude's nuts, but dude, I get it because you know what? Deep down, just strictly on my, on my own vices. I know for a fact, sitting in this chair right now, Taylor still loves to shoot dope and smoke crack. Listen, if I could, if I could get high with no consequences, I would still be getting high. Put that on my mama. Put that on my mama. But luckily for us, Matt, we cannot drink without consequences. Yep. And, and that's one of the best beautiful things for us is <laughs> alcohol and drugs lead us to no good road at this point. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. So I, I think that um, at this point we can uh, start to wrap up this episode. Um, I do want to point out the, uh, major component that I think is important that we got from Chris is that even after he discussed all the medical terminology and the, um, the way that the clinic works and the way that Suboxone works and methadone and Vivitrol and all of that, after all of that, 
we've still come back to that point where if you really want to change your life, you have to work on yourself. It's not like we said, there's no magical pill, you know, and I'm sure that pretty much every professional that works in the realm of addiction is going to come back to that. And I think if anybody is sober and has had a lengthy time of sobriety, they're going to tell you the same exact thing that you need to work on the core component, which is the human being aspect of it. Because I mean, in the end you're, I mean, Taylor and I just talked about this the other day at the end of the day, it's a choice, Matt, one of your five thoughts in the morning is getting drunk. What are you going to choose to do? Are you going to go and get drunk? Or are you going to work on yourself some more? And I think that that's one thing that Suboxone, Methadone, and this harm reduction approach, it may be able to help somebody. You know, like Chris said, it's, it's everybody's different. We're all wired differently. So if... Suboxone can save one person's life. It's worth it to me personally. If methadone can save some person's life, one person, it's worth it to me. Um, Vivitrol, same thing. So to anybody out there that's questioning, you know, if this should be used, if it shouldn't be used, I think the, I, th I think the one thing you have to look at is, is it worth it to save one person's life? And I, I'd be hard pressed to find anybody that would argue no it's not worth it and if you do maybe you need to take some soul searching yourself to be honest so um i think to uh chris is there anything while we were talking about other shit that you wanted to go back on with your um run on your clinic or suboxone or anything medically that you uh um no i'm not no, I'm, I'm here to bullshit with you guys, answer questions, and, you know, talk about what you guys want to talk about. There's nothing, I, I think we covered the, the way the clinic does things and the benefits of MAT. Um, sometimes I've probably got a little too um, medically wordy uh, with some of my responses. <laughs> uh, that first response about buprenorphine and methadone, <laughs> I, I didn't realize. Had to bring you back in. Had yeah, to bring you back yeah in. I didn't realize, like, I just started, you know, going off about it, and I was like. Yeah, I was tapping out, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> but no i think it's a good thing um i think i think what you guys are doing is a good thing i think that like the thing that frustrates me more than anything else is that even when people are trying to get better and they're trying to do better for themselves is they're treated less than human and that is like i think that like no matter what even no matter what people have done when they're going through addiction like there's still somebody's brother somebody's son somebody's uncle dad mom sister you know like there's still a person it's not like you know they're less than because they're struggling with this but too often in society i think that people without knowing the person knowing what they're going through knowing what they've been through that got them to that point um, they just kind of write them off and think that they're not worth the effort or the time to, to work with or try to help. Uh, so I think it's a good thing what you guys are doing, trying to, you know, kind of destigmatize it and, you know, put it out there. Like this is shit that people go through. This is what they deal with. It's not anything that anybody wants to deal with, but, you know, people deal with the cards that they're dealt, sometimes the cards that they deal themselves. But um, at the end of the day, like it, it, you, you treat people the way that you would want to be treated. And I feel like a lot of times in society, we forget that when dealing with people who struggle with addiction. 
and uh, that's not okay. That's you see, everybody, my parents did a good job on one of them. I'm <laughs> telling you, that's proof right there. Well, we'll have Nikki on someday, and you guys can be like, "Yeah, Matt, this is all your fucking fault." <laughs> I think that uh, you know that's the golden rule, right? Treat others as you'd want to be treated, and uh, I, I did have a thought. You know, I do want to have you back on, Chris, for sure as not the medical component, but as the brother of an alcoholic, I want to have you back on so we can kind of talk that over and right. uh, get your opinion on things as well. So I'm thinking maybe how long should we give Matt? Maybe six months and then we can bring Chris back on and check in and see how he's doing from yeah. Chris's perspective. Yeah. I'll come back whenever you guys want me to come back. Oh, we're definitely going to have you back on. This was a good yeah. conversation. Now, being that you came on as a guest and as a, we'll say expert, I, I'm going to uh, call you an expert. Dude, he uh, broke uh, our uh, guest genity. Uh, <laughs> they got fucked. Expert. I, Not right. expert, but. Uh, uh, you're an expert to me. I would say. Darth Vader's back. <laughs> we're going to have to. Uh, your father. Yeah, we're going to have to get Taylor a better setup. Taylor, you're going to have to fork out 50 bucks for one of these microphones, 100%, and uh, we're going to have to get you some headphones. But uh, now that you've heard our podcast a little bit, Chris, and we brought you on as a guest, do you have any questions for Matt or Taylor or myself that you want to bring up? Or No, um, I think it's good that Falk got the breathing situation figured out because 100%. if I was going to have to sit through an hour and a half of the breathing – Bro, I'd have fucking left, man. <laughs> I'd have left ten minutes into this shit. <laughs> um, but no, I think the uh, like I, I've listened to you guys' podcast. Um, I've listened to each episode. Um, sometimes I listen to it a little faster. I, I speed you up to one point two times because I listen oh, to the podcast. I'm like, yeah, dude, you want to you want to hear coked out, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> well. I just like to get information faster. Um, oh, yeah, because uh, you got a big brain. Got no, 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 I just don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so, like, I'm in, I'm in no time. time. I've got 20 minutes to get to work. I'm like, I'm going to listen to an hour podcast in 20 minutes. Um, so, you guys should listen to yourself sped up sometimes because it's uh, entertaining to a yeah. degree. I, I, um, I struggle because I have to listen to us like three to four times because I have to go in and edit it. So, I already have it like. And that's before I even have it published. So I'm already four hours on this bad boy. Yeah. But yeah. Um, um, well, go ahead. No, I don't think I don't think I have any necessarily questions though. Um, no, I just like I said, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I appreciate what both of you have done for Matt. Um, you know, as far as helping him along. Um, yeah. He kind of forced us to be honest. Yeah. Hey, I told him, he called me and I told him, he said, and I said, I don't know, man, I, you know, I know about opiate addiction, but you know, you know, who would be able to tell you about some shit is Taylor and Jim. I said, you know, they'd be able to tell you about some shit. So, um, you know, I'd call them, you know, utilize the people you have. Yeah. I'm super stoked for, uh, you to watch Matt grow as long as he continues to do what he needs to do. And, um, I can say without a doubt, 100%, I've told Taylor this, that, you know, the program that they're utilizing gave me my best friend back. 
it gave me my father back and it's going to give you your brother back if he uh if he wants it to but that's yeah. all on him you know so i'll be super super stoked to see you guys kind of mend mend anything that happened or you know so that's why i want to yeah, have just you back get closer on. again yeah yeah hell yeah yeah so we'll watch this growth i think that's part of it too is watching maddie grow so um good job matt i mean you're still struggling and still checking in still doing what you need to do <laughs> and taylor fuck you and uh <laughs> only because he can't talk because his shit's all messed up <laughs> Dude, like, dude, I might, I might just dip into, you know, because my ego tells me I need to buy Taylor a microphone myself <laughs> so I can be the fucking man. But hey, everybody, if I you were split ever it. wondering, you will split it with fucking twenty five. Yeah, I'll split it with you. Give Falk Daddy a little microphone. <laughs> have him hooked up with the sauce. I know Biden just gave him a stimmy, which is burning him right He's now. Got a but stimmy, he, stimmy, stimmy. Yeah, he might have to use some of that to get himself a mic. I'll Are we split. at the end of this? Are we closing out? Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I don't. I'm. I have one last thought, and it's it's actually an original thought. So I don't know if it's if it's a good thing, but uh, sobriety fucks. <laughs> love you guys. I love you guys too. Any final thoughts there, Darth Vader? No, no. I I, I just, I just appreciate, appreciate you coming on, Chris. Um, like, like I said, said differences aside, I think you laid out a. You know, you, know, you, you gave a really, really good, good explanation of the whole process. process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Translation, the big dog knows what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah, he does. You know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, not a global ticket, but, you know, he was still, you know, on the advocate board and gave up some really good reasons why we as a community probably should be advocates to an extent. Yeah, it's not for everybody. But, yeah, but, but yeah, I appreciate that, Falk. 